This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Mark Brandy, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks, Cheryl. Great to be here. Um, Mark was born in Italy and grew up in rural Victoria, where his parents owned the local pub. He graduated university with a criminal justice degree. I want to talk about that further because I don't really understand what it is, (laughs) but it's interesting (laughs) or looks interesting, and worked extensively in the justice system before changing direction and deciding to write. Mark's first novel, Wimmera, won the coveted British Crime Writers Association debut dagger and was named Best Debut at the 2018 Australian Indie Book Awards. It was also shortlisted for the Australian Book Industry Awards, Literary Fiction Book of the Year, and the Matt Ritchell Award for the New Writer of the Year. His second novel, The Rip, was published to critical acclaim in March this year. Mark now lives in Melbourne and he's working on his next book. Congratulations. Thanks, Cheryl. I mean, it doesn't happen that often, you know that, that you come out with a book and it's been, it, it is and was received so well and still is, yeah. and then you follow it up with another good one. It's it's funny, you know, I, I do feel very privileged and, and, and lucky, particularly when I look around and a lot of the the authors who um, had their first book published around the time that I did and, and fantastic mm. books um, and, you know, sometimes didn't, you know, quite take off or uh, for whatever reason, whatever the zeitgeist is or timing or, you know, there's so many intangibles in publishing. So I feel there's a, a great degree of, of luck involved. So I, I, yeah, pinch myself sometimes. Mm. Do you know, um, I think we might have talked about this recently, but, um, you know, I, I see a lot of books pre-publication, as you can imagine. Um, and I remember being at Hachette and Tom Saris, um pitching your book to me, Wimmera, and I said to him, I think you've got something very special there. And I hadn't read it then, but it was just the premise, the mm. title, and I thought there was something in it. And sure enough, I, I read it quickly after that and I just thought, this is going to this is going to be noticed. Mm. That well, doesn't happen that often. Well, that's, that's great to hear. And I think, you know, you, you guys and, and, and Better Reading are just such a fantastic supporter of, of new Australian writing mm. too. And that's, you know, it, it, to break out a new novel, as you know, is, is tough. It's really it's, tough. It's a, it's a tough market out there. And, you know, I feel that it's not so much us, like the people that work at, at Better Reading, although we're a great team and I've really got great people working with me, but it's the readers. Mm. It's those people that tell us all the time, very, Mm. very quickly, what they like reading, what they want to read, and a lot of the times it's largely Australian. It's wonderful, you know, and I, like I I know recently we did an event and and, um, Michael Robotham was talking about this and and the fact that it wasn't that long ago, particularly with, with crime, let's say, that 
the readers, readership tended to go for overseas readers, whether they be American or from the UK yeah. or elsewhere. Uh, but it seems now, you know, Australian uh, uh, fiction and particularly crime fiction has captured people's imagination and mm-hmm. it's wonderful. It's, it's the best thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And our writers, are, you know, like yourself, are just... I mean, you've sold rights overseas, have you? Yeah. To, to the UK, yeah. So, so Wimmera came out uh, in February yeah. this year and, and the RIP will be out next year in the UK as yeah. well. So it's actually, they, they changed the title of Wimmera, I should say. They, they, it's now called, over there, it's um, Into the River. Oh, wow, that's <laughs> nice too. Yeah. That is nice. It works, it works. I think they felt that the... Um, it just wouldn't, Wimra wouldn't quite have the same resonance with uh, UK readership. Although, you know, I didn't know it was a place when I first saw the title and still mm. thought it was fantastic. Mm. Well, well, the word, it actually comes from uh, an Aboriginal word in Victoria for, for throwing stick. Oh. And so it was, it's like, an, um, uh, they altered that word slightly when they named the region, but it is, yeah, it's a it's a peculiar place that we were. It's it's very flat, very arid, and and then you have this um, mountain range, the Grampians, sort of rising out of it. So there's a very stark contrast there. Right. Okay. Well, that's a good segue. I want to talk. So the way we play it here is that we like to know how you came to writing mm-hmm. with the podcast, and I want to know. I want firstly. You know, growing up an Italian Australian, I want you to talk to me about that and where you grew up, and what was the pathway to writing for you? Mm. Yeah, I, I grew up. Well, I was born in Italy, as you, as you mentioned, um, and I grew up in the town of Stall, where Wimra is set. And and I suppose yeah, we, we were the only you know Italian family in town that that I knew of anyway. And my parents had the local pub there, so we're fairly. When you've got the pub, you know you're fairly prominent in town. I suppose. What made them choose? I mean, I know what makes people come to Australia, mm. but what makes them come to? Rural or regional Australia. That's yeah. all. Oh, that's a story in itself. Because yeah. like my, my um uh, my dad. At, 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 when he first came to to Australia, he, he worked as a boiler attendant and then as a um, a train driver in Melbourne. So he and my mum lived in Melbourne and a couple of my older brothers too who were born then. And so he was working as a train driver and then uh, on, on the way to work one day, he had a car accident. And as a consequence of that, uh, his doctor, it was sort of before work cover or anything right. like that, and his doctor told him, you know, you, you can't keep, driving trains for a living because uh, the shunting's going to ruin your back. And he goes, oh, I've just so happened to have this pub for sale in the country. Have you ever thought about running a pub? And my dad, you know, he never set foot in a pub. Like, it's not really an Italian thing. He hadn't no, even been in a pub. I know. It um, does sound, it sounded odd to me yeah, when I was yeah. reading your biography. It was yeah. odd. And he, w- he went down there and, um, you know, it was a derelict pub. It hadn't been run for a few years and he, he bought it. And so my, my mum <laughs> didn't speak any English at the time and they, they moved to this town of, you know, five, six thousand people. And How old were you? I wasn't even born oh, then at that is, stage. Right, yeah. okay. so, so my parents went back to Italy. They had the pub for 30 years they ran it for 30 years um but during that time they leased it out and they went back to italy for oh. a period and and that's when i was born over there so oh, so they were living here but yeah. had you over there yeah yeah um so yeah it was it was a strange like it, I, I never thought 
like growing up, it's you, you, your reality is what it is. So yeah. I just thought this is normal. But be, being in a in a pub was a, a kind of a, a strange upbringing because I, I was on my own a lot of the time because my Be parents the were eldest. working. No, the youngest. Oh, the youngest. Yeah. Right. And um, but you're around just all these people all the time, or all the all the locals, all walks of life. So. Uh, yeah, it was only when I when I got older and and yeah, met other people that I realised that that was not a normal upbringing <laughs> at all. But it, but it, but it helped me with with my writing. I think you know that like meeting all those characters, I still think about them. There would have been a story every single day. Oh man, yeah. I mean, small towns are, are full of gossip. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah, yeah. But I think you know. In terms of um, my path to writing, that was yeah. You know, I, I loved books when I was a kid, and I, I loved reading. And I, I loved so, writing. what's the age difference between you and your next brother? The next one, he's five years older than me. Yeah, so that's it's a, yeah. kind of it's like an only child, isn't it? When Pretty there's a much. big age difference. Yeah, and, and the two the two eldest. So there's four boys in the family. The two uh-huh. eldest, they. Went off to university, like went off to Melbourne as quickly as possible. So it was almost like they were adults when I was when I was young. So I was pretty much uh, fending for myself out there. So I, I disappeared into into books and to writing. Cause that's what Did I you liked. disappear into beer? Ah, uh, that yeah, probably around sixteen, seventeen. That happened. <laughs> yeah. I always wonder whether people who grow up in pubs love beer more than anyone else. Yeah, I, it goes both ways because when I was um, like eighteen, nineteen, I, I went back. I, I dropped out of uni for a while because I, I first studied law and didn't really like it. Went back to stall and worked in the pub for a year or so. And all my mates then were coming in the pub and, and drinking. And, and that sort of turned me off alcohol for a while. <laughs> like for, I think for a year and a half, I stopped drinking. So I just looked at them and thought, oh, I don't want to be that. No, nah, it's not a good look. And the thing is, but people in, and this is a, a I shouldn't generalize in this way, but, um, sometimes in the country, in the country, um, there's a uh, look. There, there wasn't, particularly in the town um, I grew up in, there wasn't a lot of, uh, let's say, cultural outlets or, or things to do. There wasn't a, a cinema or anything like that, and a, a lot of people turned to, to drinking for entertainment or basically. reading, like yourself. Well, thankfully, <laughs> I, yeah, I turned to books. Uh, do you know I hear that a lot from writers, um, not the beer drinking, but that a lot of um, writers, for whatever reason, and not reasons of sadness, but reasons of isolation, reasons of being an only child, reasons of being in a very remote area, turn to reading mm. as a solace. Mm. Oh well, that's um, a common thread in writers. Yeah, I, I think there's you know when you discover that world and. And it opens up a whole new world for you too that you see, you know, this, um, uh, experiences through other people's eyes. That's, that's remarkable. I think when you're a kid and particularly when you are in a, in a fairly small isolated place too. So you didn't like law? No. No, I did. I think because they, they they sort of start you off with contract law, and that's extremely dry. And I was much more interested in the criminal side of things. Do you think they do that just to to um, weed out all the people that aren't genuine? Maybe probably. Yeah. And yeah, I, I couldn't couldn't stay the course. No, it wasn't. I didn't feel it was for me. So yeah, I I dropped out, and I think I you know had a crack at about half a dozen other courses. Um, over the, the years that followed and just amassed a huge hex debt. Yeah. Um, then eventually, uh, decided I need to 
to finish something, so I, I started the criminal justice degree at RMIT. Talk to me about that. What is it, and where does it get you? Mm, it, it's it kind of a, it, well, it's an arts-based degree, right. um, and so it covers like sociology, um, psychology, the, the kind of foundations of law. Uh, it looks at victimology, um, technological crime, uh, yeah, the court system. It, it's it's sort of geared to. It's almost vocationally geared toward uh, getting people to work either in. Uh, the justice system in the public service or in the courts, correctional environment, the police. Uh, so that's usually the career path people follow. I, I, I loved it. Did like, you? I really Isn't enjoyed it. Isn't it wonderful when you find your feet, when you know that you're doing something that's for you? Yeah, yeah. And, and particularly a lot of the, um, uh, the, the philosophical um, aspects to the course, you know, looking at the basis of, of law, what makes a good society, what makes a good person, why we mark people as being bad, uh, that I found that fascinating. And I think that, you know, when I um, sat down to write, those were still the, the concerns that, that drove me in a way. But before I got there, I, I, I did work in the justice department and, and I started there with a, just a student placement. So they gave me like a couple of months and, and from that they gave me a job. So what was your job? I was a policy officer. So I was working in, um, in the first instance, I was working in the diversity issues policy unit. So that was looking at, uh, um, multicultural policy, women's and disability policy within the justice system. So the way that, um, say in corrections, uh, you know, the prison environment responds to those issues, uh, police as well. So it was really a policy-based role. And I enjoyed that. But a, a couple of years later, I, I got the opportunity to, to work as a political advisor um, for the corrections minister. And that was, it was a, a, like a baptism of fire mm. to go into a political office, but I loved it. Like I, I had, um, you know, my, my uh, brief uh, was correction, so that was what I looked after. And so I got to see, you know, the inside of the, the, the prison system in Victoria and and really understand that intimately. But one of the things too that I suppose struck me was how um, the community were, were deeply interested in in crime, in in offenders, in prisons. You know, we, we were we were always trying to keep, um, I guess, our minister out of the news a lot of the time. Yeah. But we had these really high-profile offenders coming to the end of their sentence, um, often child sex offenders too. And, you know, no one wanted them in their community. We had to come up with solutions. You know, the media were chasing them around. We had to come up with ways to, to manage it. And yeah, I, I was just really, I mean, I'd, I guess I had an understanding before of the, the kind of depth of, of passion about some of those issues. But when, when you, you know, you're seeing, um, your minister on the front page of the paper talking about things or your, uh, you know, the, the brief that you've been looking at the, the previous day, um, that offender is, you know, um, being spoken about on the radio or on the news and, you know, pe people are, are reacting to it. It just gave me, I suppose, a really, a, a deeper sense that these things matter to people and crime matters to people. Without a doubt. I often wonder, and this might be 
an area that you don't know about. But I, is it because we're more interested or is it because the system is geared that way? But I often think that perpetrators have a greater voice than victims. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mm. No, Do you I, think I, that that's a genuine kind of, that's my perception when I, you know, I read the papers daily, mm. I, I'm across the news, and I often think we talk a lot about the jail system, which is, and rightly so, and we mm. talk about, um, perpetrators a lot, and we talk about rehabilitation a lot, but I feel that we don't talk about victims a lot. Mm. No, I, I think that's, that's true. It's Do you? Com- yeah, yeah, completely valid. Uh, there is a focus on, um, the, the, the criminal involved and, and the, I guess the psychology of the criminal involved. So that's part of our storytelling, isn't it? We want to hear stories. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of, I sometimes wonder if there's something, uh, kind of primal at work too, like whether we're, we're drawn to those stories on some, some level because we, um, we want to avoid being the victims in those situations. So we want to understand why that offender does something, what the situation was, and whether or not we would ever be in that situation and whether we would you know, be able to avoid being the victim. I think in, in the system itself, you know, in, in the courts, certainly in Victoria, um, my partner, she works in the county court and, and there is the opportunity for victims to make a, a victim impact statement. Which I think is so important. Oh, in, incredibly. Mm-hmm. And, and some of those, you know, my, my, that my partner's told me about are absolutely harrowing mm-hmm. and you know, it's just mm-hmm. devastating the effect a crime can have on the individuals uh, directly involved, but then just that ripple effect that goes further and further out. Uh, but but I, I think even in in writing too, sometimes we we do see a focus on on the criminal and because it's storytelling, I guess mm. it, it, we do. You're right. We seem to be more interested or intrigued by that. Yeah. Do you know it's interesting with your books with Wimmer and the Rib. And your experience, you don't really, you're not storytelling about criminals per se, are mm. you? No. For you, even though you've had that direct experience, I mean, you must, if you were visiting prisons and working with prisons, you was, you would have seen a lot of hardcore criminals. Mm. But your books aren't that formula. They're just about regular people, aren't they? 
Yeah, well, I, I think that you know, they are the people who are usually involved in, in crimes as, as victims and as perpetrators. Mm. And, and that's the, you know, the, the confronting thing, I think, for, for what was confronting for me, um, you know, working in that environment. And it was probably something I already had a sense of because my, my older brothers all worked in the, um, uh, in policing in various capacities. How did that come about? I mean, that's, that's interesting that out of a family of four, you're all in similar industries. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Or a similar industry. Whereas, you know, I come from a family of six and we're all, you know, <laughs> I mean, we're all working, but it's all very different. It's, it's, it's odd. And particularly because we had, when we're in the pub, we had a very antagonistic relationship with the local police. They, you know. <laughs> Naughty boys, were Well, you? you know, I don't think we were. But the thing being was that, um, uh, that aspect of being, you know, particularly for my dad, like an Italian running a business in, in the, say, what I remember anyway in the 80s, you know, the times of Robert Trimboli and those things. So the, the, the police took a, a really keen interest in my dad and there was rumors. That's called racial profiling. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it, it was, it was intense. Like we even, at one point, um, we, that they sent the vice squad from Melbourne, came to the pub, uh, undercover one Saturday night, raided the hotel. Um, for no reason. For no reason, assaulted. That makes me so mad. Some of the patrons, um, and then, uh, they, they charged, they charged my, my dad, like, sort of threw the book at him for serving people who were intoxicated, various, like, just minor offences, none of which they knew would would stand up in court. So in the end, they got him to plea on a charge of having illegal gambling in the premises, which uh, was for having a footy tipping competition on the wall. It's so outrageous, Mark, isn't it? It was, it was terrible, you know. Such and, an injustice. Yeah, and like it made, um, I guess, life extremely difficult for, for my parents and particularly my, my mum. She, she was really affected by it. But, you know, in terms of why then we all ended up working. Now it makes a bit more sense. <laughs> yeah, I suppose like a, it's, it's nice to think that there was some kind of, um, you know, moral imperative behind it. Um, but yeah, it's a, for, for myself personally, it's just, it's, like fascinating, I think crime's fascinating, and I, you know, but when I write about this stuff, it w- wasn't ever right that I felt like I was writing about crime. I, I felt like I was writing about the things that I was interested in, and the things well, and you're also writing about people doing bad things, like general people, like you know, with Wimmera, people in a small town, and with the Rip, people in an urban environment. Mm. Like, it's not like you know, you've met a really bad character, and he's a serial killer, and mm. you know, it's not that kind of crime. I don't know what they call that, but yours is quite different, isn't mm. it? Yeah, and I think it's not yeah. that genre crime. Yeah, no, and, and that was sort of born of experience in a lot yeah. of ways because even what I saw around the pub growing up. I mean, uh, you know, there was. There was I, I remember this. Um, there was a, a, a murder that happened directly over the road from, from the pub and the, the, the girl who was murdered, she, she'd worked for us behind the bar. Oh. She'd moved up to Darwin 
um, uh, with her boyfriend and worked up there for a while and, and then came, came back, but she'd separated from her boyfriend. And not long afterwards, her boyfriend came down and, um, pursued her. And that, I remember that Saturday night, he went down into her flat over the road and stabbed her to death. And, you know, these were, were not serial How killers. Old were you then? Oh, it was probably, uh, 12. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of, that's a big story for a 12 year old. Yeah. It? Yeah. It was, it was a lot, you know, on, on reflection. <laughs> like at the time, that's what I say. Like this was just kind of, that wasn't especially abnormal. And uh, I was surrounded with this kind of stuff happening. You know, small towns can be very violent places at times. Um, I remember seeing, you know, people get glassed in the bar, just, mm. you know, fights driven by intergenerational mm. feuds, extremely violent, um, being mm. threatened by one of the customers with a pool cue waving it at me. It's and as a 12-year-old, how did you take that story? Because, I mean, I think for me that would have been very, very emotional. Actually, my parents used to not let me watch the news. Mm. So I was, I was, I'm one of six, and if I heard or read a bad story, then I would be up crying all night. Mm. And as a 12-year-old, I reckon that would have absolutely have tipped me over the edge, that story. I think I, you know... That stuff scared me. Yeah, it, it was scary, and I, I, I don't you digest it. Well, I, I don't think I did. Mm. That was the thing. I, I probably just locked a lot of that away in a in a box. Mm. Um, and and I think a lot of those experiences I just compartmentalised because you, I think as a young kid you, you can't deal with them effectively on your mm. own. So, I know, but I suppose that that's helped my writing in a lot of ways. You know, writing has is, is unlocked that box in a yeah. lot of ways. So tell me when, I mean, you know, you've lived a life of stories. I mean, I know we all have, but, you know, so many experiences there and you saw so much. When, at what point did you have that story in your head where you thought, I'm going to write this? Mm. Had you been writing throughout your career? A little look. Writing was a big part of my job in, yeah. in that environment, but not so much in. A, although arguably it was a, in a creative sense working yeah. for a politician. <laughs> but um, look, I, I was doing a little bit of writing on the side, but I, it wasn't until I um, went part time at work. That was probably after ten years or so working in the justice system that I wanted to give writing a crack. And I went part time, started a um, professional writing and editing course at RMIT, and that was great. Yeah. Uh, you know, given writing exercises, you, mm, you sort of put practice. under the pump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was was critical. So it was actually in a short story class uh, where we were given. I think we'd actually we'd read a short story. We were then given a prompt, and I wrote a story about a, a father and son on a rabbit hunting trip. And, um, and I ended up getting that story published in some obscure Irish literary journal, uh, cause no one would publish it here. And, uh, then fortunately Radio National, um, broadcast it. And so I went on to Radio National and read it. And, and that, that was wonderful. But I, but I still, I thought about those characters, this father and son, and I, I felt like there was more, to their story, and and that's where Wimra started. Uh, yeah. Was really writing about those two characters, which would become Fab uh, and his father, and that that particular story kind of as a flashback features in, in Wimra. Um, so that's when I when I started writing. I, I didn't 
at that stage have um, an idea that it was going to be a novel necessarily. I, I was just, uh, I kept writing because I wanted to know more. And I suppose by the by the end of it, I thought I I, I might have something, but it's you know you ne- you never know you, you never know how um, publishers will receive it. You never know. And did you find the creative writing process something that for you came easy, or was it something you just enjoyed? Tell me about that because mm. it's not. I mean, you know, sitting down and writing fifty thousand words or sixty thousand mm. words is not easy. No, I, I think. I sort of kill the lily a little bit sometimes and say, yo, I, yeah. I love it and everything because yeah. there, there are days when it's tough, you know, yeah. it's the words aren't coming easily. But I, I I suppose one of the things that was instilled in me in that course and by one particular uh, teacher that I had there was um, not self-censoring and just trying to, um, I guess, you know, write from your heart. Don't, don't, don't write from your head so much. Just yeah. let it out on the page. And so, so that's what I, what I did. And then, you know, the, the editing process, the self-editing process happens later. But the most f- important thing for me was just to get those words out. So I, I, yeah. I think that's great advice. It was really good advice, really, yeah. and it was from you know she's a a, a poet primarily, yeah. but that that process of doing it when when it's kind of flowing in that way, and you know the words aren't perfect, you know the story isn't perfect, but time disappears for me when that happens. You know, mm-hmm. I can be be doing that, and I look around, and it's suddenly five o'clock, and I feel like I've only been doing it for half an hour but it's actually three or four hours I've been yeah. doing it and that's that's magic and there's no, no other experience in my life that does that, no. that that I just feel just completely engrossed completely focused inside that world and and that's what I love are you happens. writing full-time now yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, uh, did you um, how did you find your agent I, I I sent it. Well, initially I I got a um a, a residency at Varuna, the yes. writer centre, yeah, up in the Blue Mountains. Yes, yeah. and um, as part of that particular residency, there was a feedback report offered um, on your manuscript uh, from Pan Macmillan, mm-hmm. and on the back of that, I felt a bit more confident, I guess, mm-hmm. about my my manuscript, and so it was that at that that point that I sent it off to um, the slush pile at, at Curtis Brown and um, and it was a couple of months later, I think, that, that Grace Heifetz called me and said, you know, I'd like to see more of your manuscript, which was an amazing moment and mm-hmm. I, I sent, it, sent it off and then she offered um, and Curtis Brown offered representation, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, at, at that point I, I was really excited and I thought in some ways, you know, I've, I've made it, but no, no. that's just stage <laughs> that, that, one. That's yeah. just stage one. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, um, you know, the submission process afterwards was, was tough, but I, I kind of, I, I feel really lucky and indebted to Grace as well to have someone there guiding me through that process yeah. because I don't know if, on my own, I would have, you know, survived the rejections because it can be, it can be brutal. It, it can, is brutal. It, but in, in, yeah, it, I, I got great feedback too through that. And so some of the publishers were 
incredibly helpful and incredibly generous at that mm. stage. Um, but yeah, it's, it's nice to have someone there holding your hand going, it's okay. <laughs> well, Mark Brandy, congratulations. I mean, it doesn't happen that often. You get your first book, the debut, a success. Your second book, the same. Well done. Thanks so much, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.